children's workers each week in caring for our children, instructing them and teaching them in God's word. Um, our desire really is that um, our children would, um, at a certain point in their lives, to um, begin to worship with the adults and to begin to uh, understand the truths of God's word, to watch mom and dad worship the Lord. But uh, in those younger ages, we, are, we have um, faithful men and women who work with our children. For this, I'm very, very thankful. Um, the Lord's also given us uh, men who um, are apt to teach in, in our church body. I understand uh, that that is, not all, that is not true in every church, but we've been blessed. And we've heard from Jeremiah already, who, who, um, who covered the aspect of, our, of the Prince of Peace and the light that he brings into the world. Um, next week, Kelly and I will be heading out to see our grandkids in Virginia and, and their parents in Virginia, and so uh, Isaac will be preaching on the, on the, um, on, on the joy uh, that we have in the Lord, and then on New Year's, New Year's Eve day, however you want to word that, the following week, then Matt Tramp will be preaching on our hope, the blessed hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm so very thankful for that. I'm so very thankful for you uh, and for your faithfulness and for your desire to uh, seek the Lord and your desire to know him and to love him and to bear witness to him in our community. This time of the year um, is, a, is a, a good, good reminder that, uh, of what Christ has done, although we try to remember this each and every day, but remember what he has done. Would you quote with me a familiar verse uh, that's found in the book of John? Chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, I memorized it in the King James Version. If you want to say it in the NASB Version, go ahead. Or the ESV Version, go ahead. But let's just say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. According to that verse, how did God love the world? He gave us his son. God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. That whole idea of, of, the, the, of our salvation being a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. This gift is his son who provided the means uh, by which we might know God and we might have new life in him. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3 in verse 16? I want to look at this verse in the context in which it was spoken, the context in which it is written. Uh, we're going to be in reading, and I'd like to read through the verses first, and then I wanted just to make a few observations here, because we are looking, first of all, at how God loves the world, and second of all, we're going to look at how the world is judged. Two different things, how God loves the world and how the world is judged. If you would back up a few verse to verse number 13, let's begin reading from there. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever 
believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does, not, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you are familiar with the chapter, and even if you're not, if you've read the first 12 verses, of this chapter, you know that this is the account that we have where Nicodemus, the, the, one of the religious leaders of Israel, approaches Jesus in the dark of the night and, and asks of him who he is. And Jesus begins to tell Nicodemus, you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You cannot even enter into the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Nicodemus, this religious leader, who understood the scriptures, asked the Lord Jesus, how can this be? Um, am I to enter into my mother's womb again? And, and Jesus mildly rebukes him, and he says, how can you, a, a leader of the Jews, um, not understand these biblical truths? And then he, dis he discloses the effectual work of the Holy Spirit in applying the work of redemption into the hearts of people. He says here that you, unless you are born the flesh and of the spirit, you cannot, you cannot have life. In fact, read with me there if you just back up a few verses to verse number, verse number five. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. I wanted to point that out just because we find several themes throughout this entire chapter, but especially in these first 21 verses, this theme of the triune work of God in the work of redemption, the work of the Spirit of God ministering and applying what Christ has accomplished on the cross. So when we get to verse, verses number 13 through 21, when it speaks only of God, the Father, sending forth and giving God the Son, we don't read about the Holy Spirit, but know full well that the Holy Spirit is fully active in your salvation. He is even active in working in your life today. So that's a theme that we would find here, the triune work of God. We believe that there is one God, but there are three persons in one God. Beginning in verse number 13, and going to verse number 16, there are at least three different references to the Old Testament scriptures. This is not a surprise because Jesus is speaking to a religious leader who knew the Old Testament scriptures well. At that point, Nicodemus did not know the New Testament scriptures. 
because it was not yet written. But he did know the Old Testament scriptures. And so God, so Jesus speaks of at least three different times. And I think there's more. There's three particular things that I think it's important for us to understand the, 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 the big picture of how we come to John 3, 16. The first reference to the Old Testament I want to call your attention to is this reference to the Son of Man. What he says in verse number 13. He says here that no one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The reference to this in the Old Testament is in Daniel chapter 7. Nicodemus was likely well aware of that reference there. And in that passage of scripture, it describes this one as the son of man who comes to the ancient of days. And he is appointed and he is given dominion over dominions and kings over kingdoms. He is given authority over all things. When you get to the New Testament, it's interesting that the only person that uses that term son of man is Jesus, and it is in reference to himself. And what we find there, and the, the idea behind this, this terminology of referring to Jesus as the son of man is in reference to the incarnation, that God became man. He took on flesh he identified with man. He is the representative for man. He is, if you will, the last Adam. Whereas in Adam, the original Adam from Genesis chapter 1, in Adam all have sinned and all are dead in trespasses and sins. We have inherited from Adam in that his sin has, his sin has been imputed to us and that his nature has been carried on in that we practice sin. So you are born in sin. So you can thank Adam. Thank you, Adam. And if you want, you can thank Eve. She's the one that started it. But in truth, and I remember even when I first came to know the Lord as my Savior, I was, I was just just out of high school and, and thinking, well, I can't believe that Adam would do that. If I was there, I would have had my wife under control. No, but you know the truth, right? If I was there, then we would all be seeing Jesus as the last Matthew in that he would have to replace what I'm doing. Well, Jesus came as the last Adam. He is the last Adam. He is the son of man. And in Christ, ultimately, we, his righteousness, I, th I think it was, I think Isaac prayed this morning in regards to we can look at the righteousness of Christ and know that that righteousness has been imputed to our account. We stand before God, not based upon your goodness and your righteousness, because they are just as filthy rags, according to Isaiah, but we stand before God with the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us so we stand justified before God. In, in, in the opposite direction, Jesus took my sin and he bore my sin as my representative. He bore my sin. So he is the son of man. The, the second reference to the Old Testament has to do with the entirety of verse number 13. That is taken from the Old Testament, uh, either, either directly or at least alluding to 
different texts in the Old Testament. But verse number 13 reads, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, that is, the Son of Man. Well, you find it first mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses rehearsing and reiterating the law of God to the nation of Israel before they go into the promised land. And he is instructing them to remember these things. The same thing with the Lord's table. He tells them, don't forget. Because when you enter into the land and you live in homes that you did not build and you reap the harvest from a, from a, from, from a, a, a garden that you did not plant, plant, you be careful that you do not forget. And then he says this. Don't ask of yourselves, who will ascend into heaven, as though to, who will understand what God wants for us to do? As we enter into this land, how should we behave? How should we conduct ourselves? How shall we have victory? How shall we live our lives as people of God unless we ascend into heaven and ask God and God tells us? Moses is saying, that's silly. That's my translation, but he's saying, that's that's." Don't ask those goofy things because God has not hidden his word from you. It is right here before you and it is in your heart and it is easy for you to do. When you get to the New Testament, Paul uses the same passage of scripture in reference to Moses and he applies it to Jesus Christ. Don't ask, how can we ascend into heaven to get, to get the Christ or the Messiah to come down, and don't, don't, don't wonder how we're going to have him to ascend from the abyss or from the grave. Christ is already here. Verse number 13 of John chapter 3, what is, the, what is the point? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is describing for us that God has availed himself to mankind. It calls into question, or not calls into question, but it calls to mind the theme of, and we've talked about it quite a bit in the last several weeks, of his transcendency, that he stands outside of creation. And no man, no woman on this world would ever be able to know God. Now, in the general revelation, we can look into the skies, we can look at the beauty of the Black Hills, and we can get an idea that there is a creator and that he is a creator of beauty, that we cannot truly know God. We cannot go to heaven to find out what God is like. We cannot, and I say this very nicely, very kindly, we cannot go to heaven, find out what God is like, and come back and write a book. The book's already written. We can know God by the word of God because God has revealed himself in his word and in his son. Christ has come. Christ has come so that we might know him. God has availed himself to us because otherwise we would never know him. We would simply know him as our judge and executioner. Instead, he came to be our savior. There's a third reference to the Old Testament I want to call your attention to, and that's found in verse number, six, uh, verse number 14. And as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal 
life. Now, this seems to be um, disconnected with the previous verses, but it's not. What, it, what, is, what he is describing here is that the Son of Man came into this world for the purpose of being lifted up. Now, in some sense, it refers back to Isaiah chapter 52, speaking of the Son, the servant of the Lord, being lifted up and exalted and glorified for all, for, for all eternity. But that's always in conjunction with Isaiah 53, in that he is the, the, the servant of the Lord who has come and he has been, he has borne our griefs and he has borne the wrath of God upon himself. But this, this reference to Moses lifting the serpent in the wilderness is likely pretty familiar to most of you, but the picture is this, that the nation of Israel, the, the people of Israel, were in their sin, in their murmuring, in their complaining, in their worshiping of other gods, and God sent fiery serpents among them. And the serpents began to bite them, and as they began to bite them, they began to die. And they were dying in, the dro in droves. And Moses interceded on their behalf, and the Lord said, I want you to make... A, I want you to make out of bronze a bronze serpent, one that would look just like the serpents that were biting them. Put that bronze serpent on a pole and lift it up. Now, in the Old Testament, anytime you see the word, or even in the New Testament, anytime you see the use of the word bronze, it always represents judgment. And so the, the serpent that was representative of God's judgment from these serpents that were biting them, they were, he, it was lifted up, and everyone that would set their eyes upon that serpent in faith would be healed, would be delivered from God's judgment. When we get to the New Testament, the Bible tells us that he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. And in bearing our sin, he hung on the cross and he was lifted up to the cross. And that, the end of verse number 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The same idea of looking to that serpent in the wilderness, when we look to Jesus to be our Savior in faith that God, this is the provision that God has made, we can have eternal life. By the way, this is the idea of being born again that, that Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is new life. Eternal life is new life, the life of God that we have. Not the life of death that we have in Adam, but it is a new life. So we have eternal Life. And then we come to verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave, us, gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the love of God. And it's important for us to be reminded of this because we love God because he first loved us. Our love for him matures as we rehearse the love that he has for us. This is why the Apostle Paul prayed for the saints in Ephesians in chapter 3, that they would come to understand and to grasp and to comprehend the breadth and the depth and the height of the love 
that God has for us. So God, of his own volition, chose to avail himself to mankind to accomplish that which, that which we could not do in our own strength and in our own way. Beginning at verse number 17, we look at this judgment because the, the love of God and the salvation of God is best understood in seeing the sinfulness of man. If we don't ever come to the understanding of our own sin, then we will never come to the understanding of our need for a Savior. So when God gave the law to Moses, it exposed man's sin. When Christ came, the, uh, the, the, the apostle John said that in him was life, and the life was the light of man. He speaks of it here in chapter 3. Let's take a few moments to look at these verses in regards to man's judgment. Verse number 17, as to continue the train of thought from verse number 16, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Again, when we get to verse number 17, we're reminded that in Adam, all are in sin, all die, all are under condemnation. Because you are guilty of sin against God, you are condemned to face the righteous and eternal judgment of God. In essence, you are born on death row. You live this life awaiting your eternal death. But, but don't, don't miss what he is saying here. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why did God not send his son into the world to condemn the world? He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world because the world is already under condemnation. When Christ came, he came as a light in this dark world, and in that light, he exposes man for who he really is. Look in verse number 18. This is as clear an invitation to believe as you will find. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Just like that. Believe. The next phrase in the verse explains what it means to believe in him and why not believing in him brings judgment. I, it was been, it's been a little while ago, but there were, there were a couple of young men standing on my front porch asking me and mocking me because I believed that we were saved by grace through faith and faith alone. And he said, 
So all I have to do is say, I believe in Jesus and I can be saved. Not quite. Well, then what does belief mean? What does it mean? And I think, I think the verse helps us to understand the idea of what it really means to have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, look at what, he, what it says. Whosoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, the King James says he has not believed in the only begotten Son. But here in the ESV, it says he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but, but, but let's kind of break this down together. To believe in the name of someone, we, we understand that concept. We still use that today. He's made a name for himself. We know exactly what we're talking about. That his character, his, his um, behavior, his reputation is above board. Or he's made a name for himself. Everybody knows what kind of person he is, so we stay clear of him. That, that idea is that it, it, it speaks of the totality of who he is. That is in his character and his behavior, his reputation. In other words, this idea of believing goes beyond a mere intellectual assent. It's, it doesn't come by merely by human reasoning and of coming to a point of great enlightenment from human reasoning. More, it's more than believing a set of facts about Jesus. It is a personal belief in knowing the name, the person, the work, the character of Jesus Christ. A saving faith requires an additional factor than belief in anything else. I, I, for example, we have a bunch of light switches back there. I believe intellectually that when, that if Curtis was to flip one of those light switches one direction, the lights would probably go off. That's a belief system. We understand that. And, so, and that comes by intellectual assent. We acknowledge that. Comes by experience. We've all flipped the light switch on or off. Uh, and so that kind of works there. But there's a different factor when it comes to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's more than just what we can conjure up in our own minds, but it is a faith that requires divine revelation. It is, it is God. It is a God-given faith to place your eternity in his hands. When Peter acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ in Matthew chapter 16, and that he was the son of the living God, even before, even before Christ was crucified, even before Peter understood fully what was, about, what was taking place, God had already revealed to him. Jesus said, Peter, you are a blessed man because you did not learn who I am that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, except that the Father has revealed this to you. So faith comes by hearing, and that is the hearing, and it is the work of God in your life. So we believe in the name of someone that comes about by a faith given to us by divine revelation. To believe in the name of the only Son of God. I don't believe that only refers to the fact that Jesus only has one son. I, I believe that it speaks of the uniqueness of this one son. He alone. He is the one and only son of God. He alone could accomplish the work brought about 
that brought about redemption. Only God could grant a pardon to the rebels of his creation. Only God in the flesh could fulfill all righteousness as the last Adam. Only God in the flesh was willing to lay down his life as a substitute sufficient to pay our debt. Only God in the flesh could be raised from the dead as the first fruit of many brethren so that all who are in him can be assured of resurrection unto eternal life. He is the only, the one and only unique savior of the world. There is no other way. There is no other one. And anyone who does not believe in the only Son of God. By the way, did you notice the change there? Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. Here, he is referred to as the Son of God. Anyone who would not believe in the only Son of God is condemned already. It reflects his fallen nature. The next verses, next three verses, speak of this judgment. And so it begins in verse number 21. This is the judgment that we have. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So verse 19 and 20 speaks of the judgment of the wicked. The reason why the cross is an offense to those who don't believe is, is because it exposes their sin. It exposes their need for a savior. But they run from the light. And it's interesting that it says that, that they not only have a hard time with the light, they don't it's not just bothers them, they hate the light. They hate what is exposed in regards to Jesus Christ. Paul described it as they suppressing the truth. And the reason why, this verse says, is because they love their wicked works. They want to do their own thing. They want to be aut autonomous. They want to be their own master. Who are you to tell me how I am to live my life? Well, the answer is, I am God. You must believe in, the, in my son. So the, the, the natural tendency of mankind is that when the light is turned on, they scatter like, like, like cockroaches. They, they, they hate the light. They run away because their deeds are evil, because their works are evil. They want to enjoy it. And then it's interesting, at least we are noticing it in our culture in our in our day and, and age and I don't think it's new to ours I think I think history repeats itself over and again but, but pretty soon pretty soon that shame of their sin is no longer there now they now they will boast in their sin that's what Paul described in Romans chapter 1 now it becomes a sin for you to speak against their sin so evil becomes good and good becomes evil and that is what we are seeing in our world today. 
which we don't say that in a judgmental way. We say that in a compassionate way. That's why they need Jesus. And that's why God has commissioned you to tell them about, about Jesus. But it's interesting, as much as they want to hide their sin, when we come to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 19, the Apostle John says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was in the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And this is their judgment. But the judgment is not because Christ condemned them. Their judgment is because Christ came as light to show their need for a savior and they rejected the light, loving the darkness because their deeds were evil. In other words, no one will be able to tell God that he did not know. On the other hand, we find the judgment of the righteous in verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, does that mean that that judgment has been put aside for our sin? I mean, if you are doing good works and you come to God, you, walk, you come to the light, then you come to him, that, that, that judgment for your sin has just been wiped, just marked away. No. Judgment for your sin is still executed. The difference is who bears that judgment. Christ bore that judgment. This is how God loved the world. He bore our judgment on our behalf. He bore the wrath of God that we so fully desire, uh, deserve. And so when we come to him, we come so that it might be clearly seen that we stand before him wholly without blame because it is he who has carried it out in God. God has judged his sin in the person and the work of Christ Jesus, and this is how God loves the world. Can I try to call an audible? I don't know if it's going to work. Can you, Curtis, can you see if you can find the song, The Love of God? And if it doesn't work, we're going to close in prayer, and Isaac's going to wrap it up as he was intending anyway. Why don't we pray together? And if they find it, great. If they don't, great. So this is how you have loved the world. This is how you have loved me, dear God. You gave your son.
Such love is beyond our comprehension. And yet it is a reality and it is a truth. And because you have loved us, you have made us your own. And we can celebrate the birth of your son because we know that he came as your gift so that one day he would die for our sins, be raised again, and that he would return one day for his own. For this we give you thanks. For this we give you praise. In this, Lord, we understand that in turn we belong to you. As Isaiah prayed this morning that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of your dear son. So while we were in bondage to sin and to Satan and to death, we are now the bondservants of our righteous king. Help us to live in such a way as we live in this world. In this season where all the world celebrates this holiday, may we truly show forth Christ that he might be magnified in this celebration in bringing men and women to a saving faith in Jesus Christ so that he, in his goodness, might bring people to believe in the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, there it is. Let's stand together. Let's try it a cappella again. If it works, great. If it doesn't, great. <laughs> so let's sing this ver verse in the chorus, and then let's sing the third verse in the chorus.